All right. Well, I think we're locked in. Well, welcome to Barabbas Road Church. It's a, it's a funny thing. You know, I'm generally next door. If you have kids, you definitely know me. Um, but yeah, so I've been the director over the children's ministry uh, for a few years now. And so this is actually the first time I've been in a full service in the last four years. So it's kind of surreal that I get to be here for you. Um, so it's definitely a treat. I'm really excited. And, you know, my, my wife and my family are able to be here today. So that's really fun. Um, this actually, to the day, is my six-year, Jordan and I's six-year anniversary at the church. Feels like much longer, but to the day, we moved here on um, Saturday, October 1st, six years ago, and came to Barabbas Road on October 2nd, six years ago, and we fell in love with the church. You know, the thing that drew us to Barabbas Road was the care and love for the Word and the care and love for, for one another, the discipleship aspect and, and the, the genuineness of, of engaging in the Word of God. Um, it wasn't something that was manufactured, and so it quickly drew Jordan and I in, and you know, it's led me down this road of wanting to serve the church more and, and now truly serving the church with my life and devoting my life to this. And so it's a privilege to be in front of you guys. It's a privilege for me to be here and bring the Word to you today. Um, yeah, and it's, it's weird to be away from those guys. So <laughs> I know that they're holding it down. And uh, yeah, if you ever see those little red boxes pop up, I mean, some probably needs help, but I'm not going to be looking at those today. Um, <laughs> but yeah, today we're actually going to be opening up the word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you, open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are not continuing through Luke. We'll leave that to Matt. Um, but he really set us, set us up nicely on a tee. But yeah, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to be going through the entire chapter. This is the reading of God's Word. If you stand with me while we read it, that'd be great. Starting in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God and for your steadfastness and faith, in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of this calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word this morning. Let's pray that God would open up our eyes, open up our hearts to what it has for us. I pray for those of you in here who don't know you, God, that you'd convict hearts and open up their eyes to the truth. And I pray for those who are in here who do know you, that they'd be encouraged, filled with hope, and have a proper perspective 
of their suffering. Thank you so much for your word, Lord, and I pray you'd guide us through it this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So, yeah, this, this chunk of text is, uh, it's, really, it's really a fun one. It's an encouragement. It's not exactly what I had pictured when I had when first chosen this text to, to teach on. And, you know, one thing that I think it really drives home is this aspect of, of suffering within. And so one thing I, w- I want you guys to, to know and be able to see and recognize is that suffering is an inevitable part of the Christian life. You know, if, we, uh, if you'd turn with me to 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 12. And as we're flipping, I'm going to give you guys lots of time. I don't have slides. We're not going to be flipping too much. But 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. And it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. We're all suffering for Christ right now in various ways, and that's something I want to hone in on, because it's easy to forget. The entire world goes against Christianity, but we quickly get used to some of the things that we're enduring, especially the less obvious aspects of this. You know, for some of you having to choose whether or not you're going to use the preferred pronouns of people in the workplace, the active assault of the nuclear family, you know, husbands and wives, and education, uh, you know, the homeschool aspect, sacrificing their marriage, and marriage roles. You know, often when you go into the public, you're seen as a bigot, unloving, lacking compassion, and already somewhat ostracized from even having a voice without being marginalized. So not only from the people that we live amongst, but also from the government. They're dictating the details of our worship. You know, this is something that we all had in common. The government was dictating the when, the where, the what, the who. You had to choose. You had to choose whether to stand up for Christ, whether or not to live in the context of the biblical worldview. And so we're beginning to see more and more, getting more of a taste here, especially in the United States, of what it really looks like to stand up and having to make that choice for Christ. And it's important that we recognize it. We have to acknowledge it because it's easy to get used to it, to get bitter towards it. Uh, especially when it seems kind of incremental. You know, it's, it's sometimes a little bit tedious. It's long. It's, it's, again, inching up. But Christ promises us that we will suffer. You know, we, we heard a little bit about this last week with Matt's sermon. We look at Luke, Luke 6, 22 and 23, Matthew uh, 5, 10 through 12. And we won't flip there right now, but Christ is promising this suffering. He's promising persecution for his sake. It's not, it's not a surprise. He is guaranteeing it. And, you know, we, we want to look and see, okay, surely others have suffered before us. And we see that, you know, in our passage, and we see that through, through Jesus in his suffering, the prophets before that. But one person I want to take a look at is a, is a Christian that came a little bit after and during the, in the midst of the early church, and it's a story of Athanasius. Some of you guys might have heard of him. Uh, who was he? He was a man. He was born around 296 AD. He began his Christian studies during a time during Constantine's ruling. So Christianity had just gotten legalized. It had just become okay to be more open about your faith. And it could be lived out freely, openly. It was open for debate. But with that came a lot of theological issues springing up because people were trying to draw uh, following to themselves. People were trying to use the scriptures to, to make a name for themselves, to have power. And you know, many Christians, again, began to teach beliefs that went against the Bible against the Christian context. And one of those was named Arius. So he's actually the founder of Arianism and started to gain a large following, and not Arianism with the Y, Arianism with an I. Um, you know, Arianism contradicted Scripture by saying that Christ was not truly divine, but he was created. 
He was still the Son of God, but it denied Christ's eternal nature. Uh, the co-equal aspects amongst the Father and the Holy Spirit. And when Athanasius heard this, he was serving as a deacon and an assistant to the current bishop of Alexandria. And before the formal debating, he started compiling multiple written works you know, that he's well known for, most famously the incarnation of the Word of God. He compiled these written accounts and articulated why Scripture shows the view of Christ as fully God and fully man to be accurate. He refuted Arian's works. He started to stand up for it. And the first formal opposition was actually during the Council of Nicaea. So you didn't think you were maybe going to get a history lesson in church history, but here you go. The Council of Nicaea was one of the first and most deliberate attempts for Constantine to get all these people who are vying for power, who were saying Christianity is this, Christianity is that, to come together and agree on something. What are the, what are the baseline statutes that we're going to say this is what it looks like to, to truly worship the God of the Bible? Uh, it was fundamental. It was laying the groundwork. And I'm going to read to you what, what they ended up coming up with. So we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, in one Lord, um, Jesus, the anointed, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us humans and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again to judge both the living and the dead, those whose kingdom shall have no end. And the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, the, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, and who spoke by the prophets in one holy Catholic or corporate and an apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So, again, a baseline understanding of what it looked like to be a Christian and affirm who God was. So this was highly influenced by Athanasius. You know, he was, uh, you know, at the, at the winning side of the argument, they voted in favor of this, and Arius was exiled, and all was made right. But shortly after Alexander, the current bishop, died, Athanasius took his place as bishop of Alexandria, and things were easy. You know, he was able to stand up for the faith, right? Well, no. You know, these followings still had quite a amount of people, quite a, a good amount of people, and they still wanted that power. They wanted that influence. And uh, Arius still had many followers of Arianism. And one man named Eusebius came and continued fighting for, for Arianism, ignoring the Nicene Creed, planted lies into the emperor's, emperor's ear about <clears throat> how Athanasius was going to use his, his position as bishop to actually cut off grain from Egypt. And, you know, again, you know, this, this political manipulation to, again, vie for power and put, put this against Athanasius. And he was exiled for two years. He returned after two years once Constantine had died. Then Constantine II was there. But then banished Athanasius again because Eusebius, the main puppeteer, pulled the strings and now Athanasius was banished. He was exiled for another seven years. And then he was able to return and have his position back. Then for 10 years, he was able to be the bishop and things were peaceful. You know, he was able to care for the flock, care for the people, stand up for truth. Um, but then there was another one, another exile. He was, a, he was assaulted to be arrested. He fled to Egypt and continued to compile works. This, ex, this exile lasted six years. He was able to return, but the Emperor Julian ordered him to go again in this fourth exile. After another year, he returned and formed a new group affirming the Nicene Creed, but then next year he was exiled again for a few months. And then he was finally able to help and return and calibrate the church towards the fundamentals and fought in opposition to those standing against the faith until his death. And now, 
the reason I, I share this story is because you know, it, it's not a conventional, a conventional story of those standing up for faith. You know, he had a position of power and leadership, but he was continually pushed away. And you know, he compiled all these works. These are what he's well known for. He could have stayed away. He didn't have to return. He didn't have to come back, but he does. He continues to stand up for, for those who need those to stand up for these, these truths because a lot of these people who are falling into these traps had no Bible background. They are praying on you know, the, the workers that are in the ports and, and just these people who had no idea what the Bible had to say. And so for him, he was willing to stand up and continue to come back to care for the church. Despite the consequence, he was running the race. He was not just running away. You know, again, I want to look at the Thessalonians in, in, in their current situation. There was a, a long-suffering aspect. In order for us to, to see it, we're going to be bouncing around to some of the passages that give a little more context to, to what they would have been going through. But um, again, if you want to know exactly where we're going to be turning to, one of the big parts we're going to be in is, is Romans 8 today. So you can bookmark that if you'd like. And we're going to look at some of the inevitabilities for Christians that are laid out in the passage today. But again, before we dive too far in, we need to set the scene. We need to understand what exactly is going on with the Thessalonians. And so turn with me back to our passage, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2. We see Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have our introduction. Starting in verse 1, we see it's from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. They're being addressed as the ones behind the letter. You know, uh, Silvanus is actually also referred to as Silas. It would have been his Roman name. So in case you're trying to figure out why are these two people being kind of referred to in this similar context with different names, that's why Paul always uses his Roman name. Paul's penning it, but there's clearly a reason that Silvanus and Timothy are being included in that, in that introduction, and, and why is that? And to better understand, it's helpful to see what, what did Paul actually do? Did Paul go there? Did they have any interaction? And, and the answer is yes. So if you would, turn, turn with me to Acts. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, because this is really helpful to be able to get an accurate picture of what kind of suffering that these Thessalonians would have been enduring or what could we have expected them to be facing? And so starting in verse 1 of chapter 17 of Acts, this is the first-hand account. Acts 17, 1. Now that when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days... He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many other of the Greek Jews, devout Greeks and the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, who was their host, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken the money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, 
And when they had arrived, they went into a Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and then receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So you see there's a mob. There's a mob that chases Paul and Silas out of the city of Thessalonica after they had been ministering to them. You know, Jason, their host, was detained and fined. The crowd, similar to the Arians, they, you know, they're jealous for their following. Their, their following was assaulted. Their, the whole status quo of the city was turned upside down. They roused a mob. They followed them to the next city. They realized that the gospel is a thing that's disrupting that, that power structure, that, that influence, and that these people are changing. They're drawing them away. And again, it caused overall disruption. So now going back to the passage, Paul is appealing to his time. And I think this is where it's really important. Paul is appealing to the time that him and Silas had spent there because there was a very real uh, intimate aspect of, of their lives on display and the teaching that they had there. The special season of Paul's missionary journey led Paul and Silas to spend that time. Paul and Silas were on display and preaching and teaching boldly. To the point they were driven out, as we just read. When they knew that they were unable to return, Timothy is the one that gives accounts. And I think it's important to see, it's just a little bit back if we go to 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 7. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 7. We see this actual report. I think it's important to see. First Thessalonians chapter three, verses six and seven. It says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through our faith, or through your faith. So Timothy's affirming their growth in faith in God. And Paul and Silas and those ministering elsewhere are encouraged by this church and what they're enduring. You know, we, we see that it's spurring them on. And this pushes us and is confirmed even more in verses 3 and 4 of our passage in 2 Thessalonians. So verses 3 and 4 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. And so this report from Timothy is continuing to be an encouragement because they know that they are enduring suffering. They're enduring this persecution. Their church is an example and one that they're continually highlighting. Their church, the church of Thessalonica is one that is their boast. It's a big deal. It's one of their most proud ministries thus far. Paul sees the growth that they've had in such a short time, and it's evident uh, that Christ is doing a great work in their midst. You know, and we see this because 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians were written pretty closely together, uh, one after another. And so we see this in the final benediction of, of the first, first letter. So if you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. We see that Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem you highly in love because of their work. 
Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So we see that they're fulfilling his, his original ask. You know, they're, they're continuing to push on and, and do these things. So it's important that we see that you know, they are still giving, th- you know, they're giving thanks for the love that they have for one another. They're fulfilling Paul's ask of them in the first letter, and it's an encouragement. 2 Thessalonians 1 points us in the second half of verse 4 more of a picture of the suffering that they're facing. You know, we see there, there's a steadfastness in their faith in all their persecutions that they're enduring, the afflictions that they're enduring. So what exactly is suffering? What exactly are they enduring? You know, that's a reason why I wanted to go to Acts 17, because it's hard to picture exactly what's happening. You know, we don't know the form of persecution exactly, other than, you know, we see Jason get extorted of the money, you know, and most likely it was a socioeconomic one. There's not a description of beatings or killings of Christians in this part, but I'm, I'm sure it could have been. But that scene in 17, Acts 17, gives us a clearer picture. You know, the majority of the, of the converts would have been the Jews and pulling from the synagogue, prominent people in the city. So it would have been very disrupting, you know, and, and just the, the overall scene of the Roman Empire is the Christians were the, the spurge. They were the reason for plagues, diseases, fires, disasters. Everything was commonly blamed on them. So, you know, these people would have been most likely treated as, you know, marginalized outcasts, not, not able to engage in the public square. So What? You know, why does the type of suffering even matter? And I think it really gives us a better insight of what exactly they were enduring. Because it's not, it's not describing a single instance, it's describing this, this aspect of continually enduring. You know, we, they've remained steadfast up to this point. They're pressing on. The language from verse 4 implies it was not a quick affliction, but I want to sit, again, on that enduring aspect of this. They were being used as the example to other churches facing similar issues. So this was the, this was the highlight. They were the ones to look at. You know, I want to go so far as to say it's not a sprint. It's a marathon in Ironman, the long haul. You know, they're having to de- you know, this is how they're having to deal with this. The second letter, it's an expansion, a clarification. You know, we see later on in, in chapter 2 of, um, of 2 Thessalonians, we, we see an aspect that they are convinced or were convinced in this bad teaching of the day of the Lord that you know, Jesus had come back to some capacity. And so they're, they're confused, they're disoriented. And so Paul wants them to be encouraged, have an understanding, a reason for their suffering. Why are, they, why are they enduring this persecution? He wanted them to be encouraged. That the suffering that they were experiencing had a purpose. God will allow suffering. He knows your situation and Christ has suffered. We have to remember this because suffering is part of the promise that Christ left us. Now, going back to the verses we first referenced in Luke. So Luke 6, says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Christ gives us the ability to be co-heirs with him. You know, we see this in Romans 8, 12 through 17, specifically in verses 16 and 17. We're going to come back here quite a bit. But if turn with me to Romans 8, 16 and 17. We see that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
So this suffering has a purpose. It has a purpose, and we're going to get to that more. This is the ultimate. We get to share many things with Christ, including his suffering, but that co-heirship, that co-heirship is something I really want to hone in on. With Christ, it's easily, you know, one of the things that we don't look to enough. You know, one of the things that we are commonly misusing and misunderstanding is the command to rejoice in the midst of this suffering, to count it all joy. How do, we, how do we apply this when we understand, okay, this is good, our suffering has a purpose, but now we're called to, to take joy in it, you know, to rejoice in it. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, that, that command to rejoice, you know, the James 1, that command to, you know, count it as joy. So what do we do? How, how do we actually apply that? And it's not about actually being happy about the bad things that are happening, you know, being, you know, rejoicing the actual tragedy, but it's the spiritual aspect of joy of what is Christ accomplishing in my life through this suffering. You know, for you personally, when you are getting written up at work for not using the preferred pronouns that they want you to use, or when you're asked to do work on LGBTQ marketing projects that go against your conscience, and you have to take a pay cut, or when the government tells you, again, you can't meet, or your command in the military tells you you can't go to church because of the pandemic, or that you shouldn't sing at church if you want to love your neighbor. You know, the... We, I know for, for everybody, you know, everyone experienced the COVID shutdowns. We suffered together, and I don't want to forget that. These are tough things, but it doesn't mean you're, you tell yourself, man, this is good. Like, I, I should be so excited that, you know, the government is telling the church to, to shut down. But it's what is Christ accomplishing through that spiritually that we need to hone in on, that we need to remember. And it's important that we remember. You know? You shouldn't be excited that your coworkers hate you, your neighbors don't want to look at you, but we can rejoice in what Christ is accomplishing. He's allowing us to share in his suffering, and understanding why that's a blessing is important. God wants us to lack nothing. Again, we see, it, we see that in James 1. God uses our suffering for a purpose. God reminds us we are heirs with Christ, that co-heirship. Have, we have the privilege to suffer with him. He is making us worthy of the call. But now the suffering doesn't go forgotten. It doesn't go unpunished. God will bring judgment. The wicked will be judged. Go back to our passage in 2 Thessalonians verse 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know him and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So who exactly is God judging? You know, surely it's, you know, we, we see in verse 6, it's, it's the unrighteous, the oppressors, those who are afflicting this suffering on, on Christians. You know, no injustice done to Christ or his saints is missed or forgotten. He'll bring relief, and it's coming sooner than any of us think. We could die in an instant. We could get relieved in that way. We don't know if we're going to have our last moments on our way home from church, maybe right here, our last breath, our last heartbeat. We, we're not in control of that. Or it might be when he does come in that day of the Lord. But, you know, we see in verse 7, he will grant relief and carry out his vengeance. Some other words for vengeance are retribution, reprisal, counterblow. You know, it's, it's not 
a time for sympathy. It's not a time for pardon. And how does Christ come? He doesn't come alone, but he comes with his mighty angels. And this is a picture I want us to focus on because, you know, this is not baby Jesus anymore. This is not, you know, Jesus as the man, as the carpenter, but this is the, the glorified Jesus coming down with his angels, his mighty angels. You know, it's not the, the angels that we see either, in, you know, that are coming to Mary and Joseph to tell them about the child to be born, these messenger angels. But it's more like, you know, in 2 Kings 6, we, you know, Elisha sees the whole mountains covered in chariots, angels ready, ready to go to war. We don't know a, a ton exactly what this, this is going to look like other than it's mighty angels. Christ is coming. It's not, a, it's not a time for him to just have a conversation. He's coming to make war. He's coming to, to have might on display. Verses 8 through 9 show us that, again, he's inflicting this vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. This judgment is exciting. It serves as a true recompense for all who have suffered for the sake of Christ, for Christ himself. The wrongs against Christians, the wrongs against Christ are going to be paid for 100%. But you might be wondering, wait, I thought they were coming for the oppressors or Christians, but that's kind of not what it's showing in the text. It says it's coming for those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It's a little confusing because you're like, wait, I thought it was just the bad guys. I thought he was just coming for, for, the, you know, for the mob. And that's not exactly what it says. What about the nice people we know or the neutral people? The thing is, there's no neutral parties. You're either... For God or against him, there's no middle ground. If you're not a Christian and you're sitting here today, this judgment is against you. You will be destroyed, blotted out, removed. It's terrifying. It should be terrifying. And this was no different for you, Christian. But there's still time. You're listening to this right now. How can you be saved by what means? Let's go to Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23. This gives us a picture. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see that the sin that's ravaged us is equal death. How can we escape? What do we do? The gift of God is promised, but what exactly is that gift? And in the letter of Ephesians, it gives us more of a picture. I'm just going to read it. You don't have to flip there. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that none may boast. And this kind of leads us back to that Romans 8 section because Romans 8 really lays out uh, what it it looks like to be a Christian. Romans 8. So turn with me again to Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1. Which shows, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For Christ has done... For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So those of you who have been trying to tread on this neutral ground to not really be on either side, you are actually at odds with the Lord. You are at enmity with God. But Jesus has bridged the gap. That's why we are able to be here as Christians. We have seen Christ as the fulfillment of those things. He is that gift. He is the one that separates us from that punishment for sin. Christians, this is the best truth that we are able to grasp onto. It's the very nature that defines us. It's the best news. It's the gospel. And this points us to the future glory. God will be glorified. He drives hope in us by showing us the future. We've seen the suffering that God has allowed, the purpose for it, the promise of his judgment. But now I want to look at verses 10 and 12 of our passage in 2 Thessalonians 1 to focus in more on our hope, because there is hope. And for people who are suffering, it's necessary to see that hope. Starting in verse 10. When he comes on that day, this is Jesus, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. So looking at verse 10, Christ is coming. He's coming to be glorified. He's coming to truly have that promised thing from the Father, to be glorified in the saints. And where exactly do we see more affirmation of this? Again, in Romans 8. You know, going back to Romans 8. Probably we'd be turning to this a lot, but... Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. Again, looking closer, and now with even more context, we see the Spirit himself, Romans 8, 16 through 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Living the Christian life comes with suffering. But that suffering, again, is what God is using us to make us more like Christ. The suffering is what is making us worthy. It's what's going to count us as worthy. Christ is using this to sanctify us. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5. So just going back to the, the letter of 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 through 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now this should be terrifying, because number one, this should be our prayer. This should be our prayer for our own lives. But number two, that he desires for us to be sanctified completely, to be perfectly ready for his coming. And that doesn't exactly mean that it's going to be comfortable. And Christian, if you find yourself desiring for comfort, I think you ought to reorient yourself to what our calling truly is. And it's to be sanctified completely, ready for his return, ready for his glorification. Verse 11 confirms this. He's making us worthy of his calling. This is the end game. This is the hope, our perfect unity that we see unfolding. Even more so in verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. This is the culmination of the Christian life. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For, the creation, for creation was subjected not, or to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is what is set before us, what we can look towards. This is the unity of being with God forever in heaven. We get a picture of this in Revelation 21 and 22. This broken world is going to be made new. The heavens are going to be made new. We have the privilege to take part in this forever. There's so much hope there. It's worth enduring. This is what we're running towards. But right now, why does it matter? Why does it matter for me? You might say, well, I'm okay. You know, I'm dealing with some hard stuff or some annoying things, but, but I'm okay. You know, I don't, I don't want it to get too much worse. I, I'm okay keeping the status quo, but I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to stay like this. We got a taste of this in the last couple of years. It's not going to stay easy. There's going to be more and more of a cost to follow after Christ. You're going to have to be faced with bigger consequences, bigger and more costly decisions. There's some of you in this room going through tough marriages. Is it worthwhile to pursue Christ and pursue godliness as husbands and wives? You know, or you could just give up the race and file for divorce and pursue the greener pastures. Some of you at work might be told to do compromising things, to be dishonest about some of the numbers. And you could say no and take the pay cut, get blackballed for promotion, maybe fired. Or you could just give in and say, you know what, I'm tired of, I'm tired of pushing, I'm tired of doing all this for Christ. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to do it. You know, I, I don't want my 401k. I don't want my retirement to be, you know, to be assaulted right here. I just, I'll, you know, we'll just put it away for right now. Or the government might come again and say, you need to shut your doors, church. This is how you love your neighbor. And you might get put on a list, maybe put in the newspaper, lose permitting, get arrested. Or you could capitulate and not have to face any of that. There's going to be more choices that you're faced with, both little and large. And you're going to have to count the cost. You might be seen with disdain in your workplace amongst neighbors, amongst your colleagues, your peers, your family. Is it worth it? We'll be faced with these choices for the rest of our life. But I want you to remember this, that you're not alone. You're not doing this alone. We're doing this together. Just as we saw with the Thessalonians, they're, they're doing this together. So I want us to turn to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11. Starting in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So not only are the Thessalonians feeling this suffering now, not only are we starting to feel it here in this day, but so did Athanasius. So are people all around the world right now, dying every day for his sake. And I think it's just something we don't think about enough. If we don't recognize, if we don't reflect on the ways that we've suffered, how people in history throughout the ages have suffered for Christ, and 
we're not getting prepared. We're not going to be ready. We're not going to be as ready to make the right choice to stand up for Christ. But I promise you it's worth suffering for. Christ is worth it. The future glory is worth it. If you're expecting to be a co-heir with Christ, expect suffering. We're too comfortable in this consumeristic society that loves to ease any feeling of pain or hardship. But that's literally what Christ is preparing us for. He promises this suffering. Satan will tempt you to take the easy route to capitulate, but we must continue to run the race, resisting and firm in our faith. We are not in this alone. So do you desire to be sanctified completely? Like Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, is that your prayer right now, Christian? Is that your desire? If so, are you willing to endure? Are you willing to run the race to the end? If you're willing, he will see you to the end. Turn with me to Romans 8. We're going we're gonna to end it here. Romans 8, 31. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ cares for you, Christian. He's interceding for you. He's holding you. He didn't die in vain. And he will be glorified completely. He'll be glorified completely in you. So are you willing to run the race? Are you willing to endure for his sake? Because if you are, he'll see you through to the end. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this text, for the truth. I pray that we be encouraged in the midst of our suffering, that we'd be able to stand up and do the hard things, even when there is a cost, knowing that the future glory is worth it, that our worship in the midst of this is worth it. We thank you so much for all these things, Lord. In your blessed and holy name we pray. Amen.